First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. The topic of today's sermon had its origin in March of this year when the state of Iowa enacted a ban on transgender women and girls participating in women's school sports. Culture, it has been said, is the thin edge of the wedge used by reactionary forces to legally enforce discrimination against marginalized groups. The situation has changed, but the same tension is today in question. How do we respond when the force of law is used to restrict our human rights? I will not belabor the scale of the injustice of the recent Dobbs decision overturning Roe. I will not belabor the horrors that are already being seen and we expect to see in the coming weeks and months, as I'm sure those of you reading the news will see that for yourselves. Instead, I would like to focus on what happened in the past, our histories of resistance, and how people responded under circumstances that were similar. I will say at the beginning here, I am primarily going to refer to persons seeking abortions as women. Uh, This is likely accurate for the majority of people at that time. And however, it does not encompass the genders of all people who may have sought an abortion then or now. I additionally would like to acknowledge that the topic of reproductive justice is larger than access to abortion. Standing in support of reproductive justice also means standing against the endemic racism in our healthcare system and acknowledging the history of sterilization and eugenics faced primarily by black and brown people in this country. I'd like to focus on the story of the Jane Collective as a tactic of resistance and a method of retaking power. The context in which Jane operated was one in which there were many forces working in concert. Earlier, you heard about the Reverend Howard Moody and the clergy in New York who put together a public abortion referral service. At the same time, women and others were fighting in legislatures and the courts to win access to abortion and other reproductive services. Additionally, in Chicago, there was a small group of women who came together in defiance of the law to help women take control of their own reproductive rights. Then, as now, a multiplicity of tactics were deployed towards the end of equality. Jane was an organization shaped by the women's liberation movement, but not bound by it. There was no particular feminist doctrine to which all members subscribed. The members came from many walks of life, married, single, activists, or lay people to the movement. Some were members of organizations like the National Organization for Women. Others expressed fundamental disagreements with those goals or methods. Nonetheless, what drawing these women together was a desire to meet an acute and crying need in their community. This need drove their organization and all of its activities. They were responding to a call. Now, at that time in 1967 and 1969, what abortions were available were controlled primarily by the medical establishment. When where they were legally allowed, it was solely upon the determination of doctors that the mother was suicidal or otherwise in mortal danger. Many women had a limited understanding of their reproductive systems or what the process of an abortion actually entailed. 
The news was filled with horror stories of back alley butchers and inaccurate information about the long-term effects of an abortion. Despite these fears, despite the fact that many of these women thought that they were walking into injury or death, over 11,000 contacted Jane during the four years that they were active and were provided abortions. By developing relationships with medical providers, Jane was initially able to guide women to safe treatment. They found who was reputable and discreet. They avoided doctors who were callous or lecherous to the women they referred. As their reach grew, the members of Jane found themselves in a position to negotiate. They could provide a steady source of income, provided that the abortion services were provided at a reasonable price and done well. This gave them the leverage to provide for women who could not afford the fee for the abortion and eventually grew to them, the members of Jane, learning how to control the process from start to finish. Now, the going rate for an underground abortion at this time was about $300 or slightly less than $3,000 today. The Jane Collective made no bones about the fact that money was a requirement for this service. They asked the women who came to them, if you don't have the money, do you have a fur coat? Do you have a TV? Do you have a toaster? Do you have a brother? Do you have a boyfriend? Do you have an uncle, a cousin, anyone whom you can lean on for the money? Each woman was required to contribute something to her treatment. However, no woman was turned away for their inability to pay. While Jane did not reflect a particular ideology, they did incorporate a mission of education and consciousness raising for the women they worked with. They explained the process of a dilation and curatage, or DNC, which was the most common method performed at that time. They provided educational literature, including an early edition of what came to be Our Bodies, Ourselves. Their goal was to provide women the tools to understand their own bodies, as well as put them in control of, first, the procedure they were seeking, second, the, ex <clears throat> excuse me, second, the process by which that procedure is going to happen, and third, how they would choose to live their own lives. Each woman was worked with a counselor to ensure that they understood exactly what was going to happen, to make sure that they were not being coerced into the process, and to follow up with them afterwards to check for complications. Now, there was, of course, a small matter of this being entirely illegal. At the time, the women in Jane found that they were treated with a certain benign neglect by law enforcement, not least because they were provided, uh, providing referral services to the wives and daughters of police officers in some cases. So long as they kept out of the open and there were no deaths associated with their services, they were largely able to evade police scrutiny. The women in Jane were also not blind to the fact that the majority of them, middle-class white women, would be treated leniently should anything come to pass. There was one notable raid on the service which resulted in several arrests However, as expected, the bail terms were lenient and the charges eventually dropped when the Roe decision was announced. These factors mitigated the individual risk of the women in Jane. However, they were always explicit with their clients that what they were doing was an illegal activity. And by paying for this service, those people were complicit. Now, tactically, the group used many methods to maintain anonymity in their actions. Different apartments were established as fronts where women would be directed before being driven to the location where the abortions were actually performed. 
The doctors typically worked anonymously, sometimes going as far as blindfolding the women during the procedure. Members of Jane also worked with doctors and pharmacists who were sympathetic to the cause in order to access the required supplies to perform these abortions. In the rare event of a complication requiring hospitalization, they coached the women on how to demand care without revealing any identifying information. The full story of Jane is a fascinating one, and I'd encourage anyone who is interested to uh, pick up a copy of the book itself. But I'd like to move now to what are the lessons and inspirations that we can draw in our own circumstances? First, we must acknowledge the requirement for a diversity of tactics. Jane was far from the only group fighting for reproductive justice at that time, and neither were they the only group working to directly coordinate access to abortion, as shown by the example of the Reverend Moody and the clergy consultation group. Different people have different skills and opportunities to support the movement, some financially, some in a public capacity, and others in other ways. There are many examples of Jane referring women to New York for treatment, as well as the contact phone number for Jane being shared at women's liberation meetings in Chicago. The unique role of the collective was to address an acute need. Then as now there are people in crisis seeking abortions. This group was under no illusion that they could single-handedly solve the issue of abortion access. They simply chose to do the work of providing this service to as many women as they could. Today, there are already similarly situated groups gearing up to provide these services across state lines where necessary, but many of these groups will need resources. We must additionally take seriously the nature of this problem. The activities of Jane were illegal and they entailed risks. It is instructive that they perceived and leveraged their relative privilege in the face of those risks. Today, however, the ideological and perhaps theological drive to criminalize abortion is much different than it was in 1967. The risks of this activity perhaps are increasing in scale. Anti-choice forces are heavily organized and driven to threaten and punish those seeking to provide these services. Additionally, contemporary technology offers new opportunities and challenges. First, the opportunity for communication and connection across the country, but challenges in how trackable and how visible individuals will be. I connect this back to where I started with the anti-trans legislation that is being passed throughout this country, because I see these things all as a piece and all fitting under the umbrella of our own human rights. For many of us, refusing to act is no longer an, act, an option. One has only to look at Clarence Thomas' concurrence in Dobbs to see where the forces of reaction wish to push to next. The right to marry, the right to contraception, and the right to exist as an out queer person are under threat. I believe our liberation is bound together by the threat of solidarity. One tear and the seams will be ripped apart. What was true for Jane then is true for us now. We must keep each other safe. Nobody is going to come in and fix everything for us. We must vote and we must speak and we must march. And yet we must acknowledge that no amount of voting or speaking or marching will help a pregnant person in crisis. If that person should call for Jane, who now will answer? 
Thank you.